out here a little bit. I, uh, some of you guys know that I listen to podcasts a lot. It's kind of my, my thing to do when I just want something uh, informative. I'm kind of a nerd on lots of levels. My wife over here not disagreeing at all. Thanks, huh? But no, I, like, I, I was the kid who would rather watch a documentary on PBS on on a Saturday afternoon than a movie with my buddies or something like that. I've always been that kind of guy, and I get a lot of information from a lot of podcasts that are really good, and two of my favorites that I listen to are Revitalize and Replant, which is about church revitalization, church replanting, kind of what we're doing here, right? It's It's practical information about that, and another one that I listen to is called the Rural Pastor Podcast, and the hosts of these podcasts are guys that have churches our size, 12, 15, 20 people or smaller, you know, and they're just, they're loving their communities, they're loving Jesus, they're preaching the word, and they're just, they're trying for the sake of God and for God's glory, and they just want to hear how we're doing. And, and so coming home last night from some errands we had to run, I'm listening to Revitalize and Replant, and I got to listen to a brother talk about a sister church in Loop City, Nebraska. Y'all ever heard of Loop City, Nebraska? Nobody has. 1,500 people total in the town, uh, 3,000 people total in their county. They don't even have a stoplight. He said they have a blinking yellow light as you go through town. Um, has a congregation of 12 to 15 on a Sunday morning, and he said, you know, it's been interesting, and this is, this is I, I got a point to this eventually, I swear. Um, he says, you know, here's the interesting thing is we're small and we can't do a lot, but we can show up as a congregation. And I thought, man, that, that feels really applicable to Calvary Heights right now. We're small. We can't do a lot, but we can show up. Tuesday night's going to be one of those neat opportunities for us. We maybe can't do much, but we can show up and let the community know, hey, we're here. We love this community. We love Jesus and we love his word and we want to share that love with you guys. So be thinking about that, be praying about that as we we go into kind of the next steps and some things we got going on. Um, we're going we're gonna to look at doing some other crazy things that they do here downtown. Cookie Stroll is going to be coming up late November, kind of early December time. We're going to be looking at doing the Cookie Stroll because, again, we can't do much, but we can show up, right? And so we want to be a part of some of the things that are happening in our community to let our community know we love you for the sake of our God who is great and magnificent. So, with all of that, let's dive into Ephesians chapter 1 again. We're going to be looking at those same few verses we looked at last week, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. If you have your Bibles, awesome. If not, that's okay. It'll be up on the screen for you to see. But let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through, Christ, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has, been, which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespass, trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time 
to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Father in heaven, we just thank you. We thank you for this time we have gathered here to worship. We thank you for the opportunity that you have given us to present the gospel to a community that needs it. We thank you, God, that that we can spend time gathered here worshiping, but also time gathered serving you. Father, we pray that as as we take time today to just be in your word and to worship you through the through the hearing and through the response to that word, that you would continue to speak to our hearts, you would challenge us, convict us, draw us close to you through your word. Father, I pray that you'd put me aside and you would allow that this message that, that you've given to me to be just of you and nothing else. Father, bless us as we seek to, to honor and glorify you. Let us be a blessing to your name. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. So we're back. We're back looking at Paul's magnificent run-on sentence prayer about our glorious God that he offers up right here at the beginning of Ephesians. We read this passage last week, and we read it. We, we saw that Paul is inviting us to take a close look at, at the one whom we worship. He's reminded us that we have this triune God who is one in essence, power and might, yet individual in role. The Father chooses us. The Son redeems us. The Spirit assures us. This is our God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. And again, a beautiful, marvelous mystery that is hard to understand, hard to kind of wrap our heads around. And last week, we unpacked just a little bit of that doctrine of, of election that Paul gives us in this passage, and we, we briefly looked at that doctrine of the Trinity. And, and this week, we're going to move on to take a look at some of the doctrines of adoption, the, adopt, the doctrine of redemption, and the doctrine of assurance as Paul lays them out in this passage. My prayer has been, as I've been looking at this passage again this week, is, is that I handle these things well, I handle these things rightly before you and before our God. What we see in this passage, though, is that, is that God chose a people to be holy, a people for sonship. This is that lesson about the adoption that we have into the family of God when we come to salvation through Christ, right? This is what adoption is, parents choosing out of love their very own child. I, I think that's an amazing thing to think about. When a parent looks and says, I'm choosing you because I have this overflowing love in my heart to be my child through adoption. We, we've had some families in our, in our group that have, that have gone through adoption stories who have chosen in love to adopt in love through fostering a child even and making that child the child of their heart. That's what God is doing. It, it's, it's, a, it's a poor reflection when we do that here on earth of what God is doing with us. As we think about this whole concept of adoption, 
we, we think about the things that we ask our students to do. When I'm, when I'm working with my, my students at school, I'm always asking them to ask themselves who, what, when, where, how, and why to try to, to find out the answers to things that they see and struggle with. And I want them to find as many of those answers as possible. As we're looking at what's happening here about adoption in particular, Paul answers the, the who, what, the when, the how, and the why of adoption for us in this passage. The who should be pretty simple for us to see. It's God the Father. God the Father adopts us as sons through Jesus Christ. But what does it mean to be adopted? It means to be placed as a son. Right? This is a real big deal. And, and to be placed as a son, I know that sounds kind of weird in, in modern language and in modern terms, but, but this is a really, really big deal. And it's really freeing for the women who are hearing this letter 2,000 years ago. It means to be, be placed as a son, and, and it's freeing for these women and for these girls because it was both the Roman and Jewish custom at the time that only men could receive an inheritance. Daughters could not. Daughters could be given off in marriage. Their husband was in to take care of them. Widows were to be taken care of by the oldest son who had received the inheritance. Even the wife of the deceased didn't necessarily get an inheritance. It was expected upon the oldest son to take care of her. But what Paul is reminding us is, is that in Christ, we are all, both male and female, Jew and Gentile, we all receive the inheritance of salvation. It means that we all have the rights and privileges and the responsibilities that belong to being the Father's children. See, it's, it's this beautiful vertical and horizontal relationship, right? As the adoptee, we gain, that's vertical, right? We, we gain a father. But we also, as adoptees, gain siblings. That's the horizontal. When we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ, we mean that because it's real. You've become my siblings through Jesus Christ. I have nothing in common with most people in the room except Jesus who says now we're siblings and we share a dad who is holy and gracious and good. See, in, in Christ, we, we have an amazing family that goes well beyond our genetics. The church universal is our family. And when we say we have brothers and sisters in Christ, we mean all believers all over the globe at all times. It's an amazing thought that I'm, I'm a brother in Christ to the early church founders like Paul and Peter. We share that same inheritance. That's crazy. That I share the same inheritance with, with dear friends who are serving in Ecuador, David and Monica Peraño, who, who, who speak Spanish and, and Quechua and are reaching people in the jungles and the mountains of Ecuador. But I'm their brother and sister in Christ. We share that Jesus genetic with each other. When does this adoption happen? Look at verse 4. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to a, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Paul says that it, that it happens before the foundation of the world. It was part of God's plan from the beginning that you be adopted in Jesus. And it is finalized when you're convicted of the Holy Spirit upon hearing the gospel and call out to Christ saying, Jesus, forgive me, and calling out for that repentance and that forgiveness. And it happens through Jesus. How does that adoption happen? It's there. It's through Jesus Christ. And only through Christ do we receive any of the blessings that Paul is praising God for in this passage. Because of the work that Christ has done for us on the cross, the price that he paid for our sake, but for God's glory, we can be adopted. And why does God adopt? Why does God adopt those he chooses? It's according to his purpose and his will. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. I know that just saying, well, because God willed it that way, almost feels like a shallow answer, right? Why did, why did God adopt you? Because he's God. Almost feels, almost feels a little empty, but it's not. See, the, the things that, that we have to remember is that, that there are things about our Lord that are wonderful mysteries. And this is one of those things. I'll never really know why God chose me to be adopted by Him, why He convicted me of the Holy Spirit, why I felt the need and, and was compelled to repent. I'll never know all of that. This is one of those beautiful, wonderful mysteries. But know that it pleases God and it delights God to adopt his children. He did it to the praise of his glorious grace. Our adoption through Christ magnifies the greatness of God, and it gives God glory. See, adoption gives us as followers of Christ all the rights, all the privileges, and all the responsibilities of being a child of the God who is the creator of the world. It implies that, that our pursuit of holiness and, and our drive to share the gospel should be there. right? Just as children, we're going to imitate earthly parents. Followers of Christ should imitate their heavenly father. We should have a desire to want to be like our dad. Jesus is our oldest brother. We should want to be like our oldest brother. We should want to take on the family business. Right? When I, I remember as a kid, eight years old, nine years old, sitting in my papa's shop down on corner of Home Avenue and Jackson Street, fixed radiators. That's all I ever knew he did. I wanted to be like Papa. I wanted to have greasy hands and solder stuff because it was cool, right? Well, it's more cool to take the family business of God and to carry that out. 
We want to take on the family business. We want to carry out the mission of our Father who is God in heaven. We want to carry that out. We want to make Christ known throughout the world. That should be our drive. That is our family business. Something to understand and remember about adoption is is that for adoption to work, this is where it's a little tricky, the adopters are not the true parents of the one being adopted. The one being adopted is not naturally like the one who adopts him or her. And the same is true about our adoption from God. When he adopts us, we're we're not necessarily like him. Well, we're made in his image, right? And we are naturally, though, children of this sinful world before that adoption is finalized. When we're saved from our sinful selves, we are reborn so that we may start to take on the traits and the characteristics of God who has adopted us. This is the miracle of salvation, that we are extracted from the world and brought into the household of God, King of the universe, and given the right to an inheritance we did not earn and did not even have a birthright too. I get why Paul started out this section, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I get why he does that, because there is so much to praise God for in our salvation. But Paul praises God not just for God and the salvation and the work he did there, but he he praises God for the work of the Son who redeems us. Verses 7 and 8, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. That idea of redemption goes back and and kind of harkens back to to ransoming somebody out of captivity or from slavery. It's language that goes all the way back to the exodus when God pulled them out of Egypt, the Israelites. The Israelites were both both captive and they were in slavery, and God redeemed them from that. And we too, before our salvation, before Christ has pulled us out, we were captive and we were held in slavery. And it was a spiritual captivity and a slavery to sin. See, if you're in Christ, if you are in Jesus, God has done the work of rescuing you. He has transferred you into the kingdom of God. You have redemption and you have forgiveness, but that redemption came at a cost. Scripture here says, through his blood, we have been redeemed. In him, we have Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses in verse 7. Through his blood we are redeemed. Jesus, in his love for us and in his willingness to serve the Father, sacrificed himself on the cross to pay for your redemption. And our redemption is linked to our forgiveness of our sins. This is the nature of redemption, that that the followers of Christ are freed from slavery, we're freed from that sin 
but we're also freed from that guilt of the sin. And we only find that forgiveness through Jesus Christ. The freedom was was affected by the blood of Christ that He shed for us. Jesus bore sins in His body on the cross. His death was an atoning sacrifice. Jesus made the reparations for all the wrong that we had done to God, and He did it for us. Since He has forgiven us, our, our sins, we think about that, that Jesus has forgiven us of our sins. We should pour out our hearts in adoration to Christ. Again, I get why Paul opens up with, Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's thinking about all these things that that God has done for God's glory, but wound up benefiting Him anyway. And And he's just pouring out his heart in adoration because this, this forgiveness that we get is, is this precious gift. And it's the precious gift of the riches of His grace, which God lavished upon us. And what we have received from Christ is so good that our language is really inaccurate and inadequate to properly describe how good it is. In God's grace, he, he also gives us wisdom and insight. It's God's wonderful, matchless grace that we have been given. And, and, and it's through that that we've got redemption and forgiveness and wisdom to live a life worthy of His calling on our lives. Again, this is why Paul feels so compelled to to open this letter to the church at Ephesus with with this prayer of adoration and praise to God and Jesus. I like that again in, in 8. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Continuing on. Making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. That word mystery in in verse 9 refers to something previously unknown, something hidden, or or something you kind of know about vaguely, but now it's been made fully known. Through Christ, the mystery of God's will is now revealed to those who are believers and followers. God has graciously revealed His eternal plan to us, and His plan centers on the Redeemer, Jesus. What's God's big plan? Jesus. What's God's big will? That you know Jesus? That's it. It sounds like it should be much more complicated than that. But our God understands that we are simple people with simple minds. And that that He just wants to unite all things together in Jesus. Jesus being the center of it. He wants to unite the things of heaven and unite the things of earth. And all of creation groans for that day of unification and redemption. God's people call out for that redemption as we sojourn through this fallen earth. John Stott says it like this, and and I, I like what Pastor Stott has to say. He says, In the fullness of time, 
God's two creations, His whole universe and His whole church, will be unified under the cosmic Christ who is the supreme head of both. A new heaven, a new earth. Made new under a Jesus. Unified to worship and honor and glorify our God. In this one passage so far, we have seen that we are chosen by the Father. We have seen that we are redeemed by the Son. And, and now Paul reminds us that we are assured by the Spirit. And he does so by, again, referencing our inheritance, right? The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of, our, of that inheritance. Now look at that, verses 13 and 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. This is, again, another reason why I believe that Paul opens this letter with, with praise and another reason for us to praise as well. Right? That, that when I talked about this early on, I mentioned that this is one big long sentence in the Greek. The Greeks didn't use punctuation marks, but they used spacing. And in the earliest manuscripts we have of this, this is all kind of smooshed together, and it's one big sentence, one big thought that Paul has. And some of the, that comes from ideas like the words we see that says, we have maintained or we have obtained an inheritance. Right? For us, that's five words. We have obtained an inheritance. In the Greek, it's one word. They have one word that describes that as Paul was writing it down in the earliest manuscripts. And, and, and so that translation of that one compound word is a little bit tricky. It can mean we were made an inheritance or we were made a heritage. Or it could mean we have received an inheritance. We were made an inheritance. That idea that, that we were made an inheritance shows us that we are God's possession. And, and when we read that, being a part of God's possession, something that God holds dear and holds in His hands, that's a common idea throughout the Old Testament. The people of Israel were God's possession. They were His inheritance. They belonged to Him. That's not an un, unheard of idea and a very common Old Testament theme. But the idea that we have received an inheritance kind of makes us think about 1 Peter 3, verse, or chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, where it says, Blessed be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a loving hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So is it that we belong to God, or is it we have something that God's holding for us that we'll get later? I think both are correct. I think both are correct. That we are God's possession, and through Christ we have received an inheritance that we're going to get later that is unimaginably fantastic. This was God's design and plan from the be before time began. 
It has all been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That, that making those who believe in Christ heirs with Christ is not some sort of ad hoc event that God has come up with. God has planned this for all of eternity. God is the sovereign of the universe, directs things as he sees fit. God's predestined design gives us tremendous comfort. Tremendous comfort. Be because we know that all who came to Christ do, throw, do so through God's enabling grace. It was God who did that. And it's, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it sometimes because God uses human means to fulfill the things that he has ordained. Paul and the other writers of Scripture did, did not look at, at tragedies in their lives or evil in their lives as a, as a reason to blame God, but as a way to see him as sovereign and in control. Those tragedies in their lives gave them, gave them comfort and assurance because they knew and they were confident that evil would not and could not triumph under a holy God. They knew that God's good plans for his people would be fulfilled no matter what. And I like that, that we can have that assurance, that the Holy Spirit gives us that assurance. But the Holy Spirit is it's not just this, this assurance that we get, but we're also sealed by the Spirit. I love that. Now that verb sealed can, can mean a couple of things. It can, it can mean that the Holy Spirit protects us and preserves Christians until they reach their inheritance. Okay, So I, I, I can be protected and preserved until my time to meet Christ comes up, all right? Or it can also mean that the Holy Spirit certifies the authenticity of their acceptance by God as being genuine. That I'm certified belonging to God. Again, both ideas are biblically true. Both ideas are biblically accurate. As a seal, kind of like what Paul's describing here, it's this mark of authenticity. It's a mark of ownership. It is your proof of purchase. God, through the life change that the Spirit gives, has sealed our hearts, showing that Christ has paid for our sins, and He's paid for them in full. And we no longer belong to this fallen world, but we belong to Him God the Father, creator of the universe. God has sealed us and will keep us until the day of redemption. And at that day of redemption, he's not just going to keep us and turn us loose. No, that's when he brings us in even closer. Mm. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our final inheritance. He's the down payment on what we have been promised through Christ. Our down payment. God is not just telling us about the future through the Holy Spirit. No, through the Holy Spirit, God is bringing the future to us here in the present. It's, it's this taste. It's, it's, we get this sample of what our future will be like. See, when we gather to worship, this is who our God is. When we, we gather and we say, we're going to go worship God today. We're worshiping 
the God who is the Father who chose us before the foundations of the earth. We are worshiping in unity Jesus the Son who has redeemed us and provides for us a way to be adopted as co-heirs to the Father's riches. And we worship the Holy Spirit who assures us of our belonging to God. Again, it is no wonder that Paul broke into prayer of praise when he pondered our God to begin this letter. And it should lead us to praise the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as well. And it should lead us into worship as well. Now, today, maybe you're thinking, I, I just don't know. I don't know if I know God the way I, I heard him described today. Maybe I don't feel assured of the Holy Spirit the way I've heard it today. Maybe you're thinking, I need to know this God, but how can I know this God? Listen, again, we are a simple people, and God has given us a simple solution. He knows that we are sinful and we're rebellious. He knows that we have rebelled against God. He knows that we have rebelled against His truth. And because of that, He knows we deserve death and eternal separation from His favor. God knows this about us. And even those of us who are in leadership within this church, this is our starting point too. There's nothing different about us in that way. The beautiful thing is is that God and His love for the people that he created, designed a way for those of us who are chosen by him to become a saint. He takes the rebel and he makes them a saint. It's Jesus who is in human flesh, who is God the Son. He came down here to redeem us. He came and he lived among us. And in his life here on earth, he fulfilled all of the law of God, something that you and I cannot do. He lived a sinless life to be perfect sacrifice that we need. At that time, the, the blood, the, the streets of Jerusalem flowed with blood from the sacrifices of the ox and the goats and the sheep that were given so frequently. Flowed around the temple because that blood was there. Jesus came and said, no, my blood atones once and for all. Perfect sacrifice. He has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. He rescues us. He takes our sin, He takes our shame, and He, he places it on the cross with His own body. He willingly pays for our sin by sacrificing Himself for our sake. Jesus was then raised from the dead to provide the only way for us to be rescued and restored to right relationship with God. And it's simple. It's believe, admit, and follow. We, we just, just admit our sinfulness and stop trusting in ourselves and our own power. We, we ask Jesus to forgive us and rescue us. One of the most beautiful sinner's prayers I've ever heard in my life was a little 85-year-old woman who said to me one time as I'm reading through Scripture with her, and she just cries out, Jesus, I'm wrong, fix me. And he did. I want to be with you. It's not complicated. When we ask Jesus to forgive and rescue us, we do this, and He is good and faithful and just to bring into us a new life and begins the work to forgive and rescue us. He makes us new creatures, and, and God, through Jesus, renews all aspects of our lives. And only through Jesus can you truly know God. 
And only through Jesus can you experience the assurance of the Holy Spirit. And if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus today, I, I encourage you to do so. If you just have questions, ask me. I want to talk to you about my Jesus today. If you're already a follower of Christ, I, I encourage you to ponder how mighty and how wonderful our God is. I encourage you to seek to know the Father who chose you. I want to encourage you to seek the Son who redeemed you and to get to know the Spirit who assures you by spending time in fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to encourage you to spend time reading the Word that God has given us that reveals Himself to us. And I want to encourage you to, to, to join our God in His mission to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to others. We're getting ready to enter into a time of of invitation, call to action. Um, and, and we'll go into the time of prayer and we'll, we'll talk about that and what that means here for us as a body. Let's, let's go to him in prayer. Father, we just thank you. Thank you so much for the day that you've given to us. We thank you for this, this time we have to, to just realize who you are and the magnificence of you. Father, as we enter into this time of of invitation, this time of call to action, this time of, of doing business with you. I pray that our hearts would be stirred by the Spirit, be challenged by the Word, and, and, and convicted to get to know you more. Father, if there's somebody listening online right now or somebody here that, that needs to know Jesus in a real and personal way, I pray that you would move in them to do just that. Father, thank you for providing for us a way to become saints, even though we have been rebels. We thank you for the gospel work that is done. We thank you that, that you have chosen us before time and that Jesus redeems us and that the Spirit assures us. Thank you for adopting us as your sons. It's in Jesus' name I pray.